heard a lot about this uh, show, the ex-candidates. These institutions which we've been told to respect and trust are actually completely untrustworthy. Have you confirmed that you are negative before attending tonight if you are unvaccinated? I still see people with masks on and driving and they're in the car by themselves. So you can pay my electricity bill, you thinking little spare. We're teaching them about what it means to be a pansexual instead of teaching them how to do your taxes. It's no for me. I say no to the boys. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, and as always, I'm joined by the One Nation candidate for Campbelltown, Adam Zara. How are you going tonight, Adam? I'm very well, thanks, Stephen. Um, how are you guys going? Good. Very well, thank you. Thank you. We've also got uh, Paul Vallejo here. He's a former um, aerospace engineer from NASA, coming to, coming to us from Florida. How are you tonight, Paul? Good, good. Thank you, Stephen. And on... Tonight's episode, we have Dr. Peter McCulloch. He's an internist, cardiologist, and epidemiologist. He's one of the most published cardiologists ever in the United States of America with over 1,000 publications and 660 citations in the National Library of Medicine. Since the outbreak of the pandemic, Dr. McCulloch has been one of the most outspoken commentators on the medical response to COVID and has contributed dozens of peer-reviewed publications on the infection. Most importantly, Dr. McCulloch has accepted an invitation to speak here in Australia next month. He'll be speaking in Coulomb uh, in, on February 10th, Gold Coast February 11th, Melbourne February 12th, and the International Convention Centre here in Sydney on February 13th. How are you tonight, Dr. McCulloch? Wow, I feel like a rock star. It's uh, great <laughs> to join you. You know, it's the, near the end of the day here in Texas. I note that I'm the only person on the program wearing a tie. Uh, and I can't wait to, after this, uh, relax. But it's been a long day. Great to join you in Australia next month. I've been there before. Love the country and can't wait to, to see everybody. What are you hoping to achieve by coming to Australia and speak? The main thing I want to do is answer questions. This is very important. You know, we're three years into the pandemic and in the United States, our public health agencies have held no public forums, none. Uh, the hospitals and medical schools, again, have had no question and answer sessions, no opportunity for uh, discourse with the public. And our local community departments of public health have stonewalled Americans. So people have questions and they want answers. Our public health officials have not delivered. Yeah, definitely. Like We're very excited to have you. Are you aware that there's a bit of controversy, um, a little bit of... Uh, Controversy. Yeah, controversy that these people that are trying to block your entry into the country. I hope it doesn't happen. You know, I still had a valid Australian visa from my last visit. Uh, we, uh, I ended up paying an extra fee. Uh, my wife uh, has a visa and best-selling a true author, John Leake, has a visa. So they'd have to find a valid reason to... Um, uh, to, to remove our visas. I hope it doesn't come to that, but they could be in trouble if they try. With my first, with my first question, I, well, I just, first thing I'm going to say thank you. You were a hero of mine anyway, because like in, in Australia, all of our doctors had been threatened and, and cancelled really via AFRA. Um, so what happened was if they did anything against the narrative or if they said anything against, you know, you weren't able to um, have the, the shot or something like that, they were, you know, could lose their licenses and then, you know, obviously lose their position. 
So um, we weren't getting any sort of information. We were getting no alternative information at all. Um, and I, you know, when I started my political career, I started looking up, um, you know, people who were talking out and you were definitely one of them. So thank you for that. And thank you for giving us, um, you know, and, you know, to make a, a, a more, you know, in, informed decision, like, you know, do I run the risk with, with, the, with the injection or do I run the risk with going up against the virus? I mean, you know, it turns out that, um, so we've had some figures, um, rough figures because um, I haven't got, I'm not in my office today, unfortunately. Um, but we have noticed that um, people who are having more injections, um, you know, so if you've had two shots that you're 2.8 or 3.6 times more likely to actually contract the virus. Um, these figures have been coming out and been um, on public record. Um, and then it, it jumps up to once three or more shots, it goes up to 3.87% over somebody who might not have chosen not to have the vaccination. Um, have you got similar figures and confirmations of things like that that are happening over there? Well, what we have is we actually have a very good system. Uh, our CDC does a forecasting system based on the variants. It's been very accurate. It's called CDC Nowcast. So what we know is the vaccines in the United States are coded against the ancestral Wuhan spike protein. And then there are bivalent boosters, again, uh, coding against the, uh, the original Wuhan spike and then against BA4, BA5. What Nowcast uh, has shown us is those strains are completely gone now, gone. And we have uh, X1, X1BB. Uh, we have a whole new set of variants. So we know from a theoretical perspective, the vaccines would have zero impact, zero. And uh, in papers in 2021, uh, one notable one by Wheatley and colleagues suggested if we keep vaccinating with outdated vaccines, that we're gonna misdirect the immune system. The immune system will be focused on something that no longer exists. So the real virus, the one that we encounter, the new variant, uh, would have a, a an easier time. There'd be enhanced infectivity, more transmission, potentially even more severe outcomes. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Australia. Some of the statistics are stunning. Where uh, you know, out of uh, you know, large numbers of hospitalizations, even deaths, they still happen. Uh, the vast majority, in fact, nearly all of them are fully vaccinated, as you indicated, double, triple, quadruple vaccinated. My understanding is in Australia. It's about 10% of the population was wise enough not to take a vaccine. In the United States, it's about 17%. So those numbers are, are pretty clear. At least our CDC says 83% of Americans took at least one shot. Uh, and two thirds of Americans at some point in time were fully vaccinated with two shots. But the current number in the United States of Americans keeping up with the schedule, which means every six months injections is only 13%. Uh, mm -hmm. Even among nursing home workers that would have, and theor theoretically, would, would that would be the most compelling case for a nursing home worker to take a vaccine, the current rate is only 10%. Going along with that issue of advanced infection with multiple shots, there was a recent study about the upregulation of IgG4. Uh, and the idea here, from what I understand, is that if that happens under multiple object injections, the body will learn to tolerate the disease, tolerate the spike protein rather than attack it. And that would lead to more long lasting infections and, and chronic reinfection. Is that, do I have that right? You have it right. It could be worse than that. Uh, if we generate, if we have this uh, immunoglobulin uh, class switching problem, 
we're going to be having people take vaccines. They'll generate antibodies that actually don't antagonize the spike protein that's produced at all. Uh, and in that circumstance, we could have unabated spike protein injury to the body. And a recent paper in circulation, our best cardiology journal by Yonker and colleagues, 16 young people in Harvard, Massachusetts General Hospital with myocarditis, with heart damage after the vaccines. And they had this problem where they had antibodies, but they were not neutralizing the spike protein that was produced. Those who did, uh, did not have myocarditis, they, their antibodies actually neutralized the spike protein at hand. So, so this could really be bad. Not only would there be enhanced risk of infection, but enhanced risk for unabated spike protein damage. Now, our US FDA says the spike protein and the vaccines cause heart damage, myocarditis, cause uh, uh, bl uh, blood clots, in uh, the blood clots, a recent FDA paper by Wu and colleagues, this was stunning. Our FDA reported on thousands of cases of blood clots from the ankle to the hip, massive blood clots, you know, in, in people, in, in, in vivo. And then lastly, neurologic damage. And some of the neurologic damage is, uh, is absolutely disabling. I was struck by a paper by uh, Von Dag Berheld, published in JAMA from three Nordic countries. This is stunning. 7,750 neurologically devastating strokes in people within 28 days of taking the vaccine. And they carefully ruled out any involvement of COVID. Uh, so, so the vaccine side effects, serious adverse events and death, they can't be understated. Uh, one follow-up to that, you mentioned the, uh, the, the blood clots, uh, the long fibrin blood clots. Is that what you were gonna talk about, uh, Adam? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. So I was going to ask about the white fibrous blood clots that we've been hearing about. Um, firstly, are they real? Have you have been have you been able to confirm that these white fibrous blood clots that are happening are real? Well, I can tell you that uh, this paper by Wu and colleagues from the US FDA, Silver Spring, Maryland, it's in my Substack, stack uh, describing. Uh, now, this is with the Janssen uh, vaccine. This would be similar to AstraZeneca. Uh, very large blood clots, thousands of cases, you know, in, in patients. Uh, and it's determined ultrasonically and then ultimately at autopsy if, if they die. In the Wu paper, I think 11% were fatal. I mean, that's a huge fatality rate. Uh, what many are remarking about are post-mortem uh, rubbery blood clots. And in a paper that I published with uh, Stephanie Seneff and colleagues, we point out that the spike protein is in the blood clots and it's amyloidogenic. And amyloidogenic means it folds and becomes rubber-like. Amyloid uh, is a whole family of diseases that happen in medicine when human proteins fold and become deposited in tissues. It makes tissues rubbery. And that's exactly what we see with amyloid. I have a lot of experience in pathology uh, for years of being a discussant in a pathology conference. We studied amyloid organs, which literally almost bounce off the table. But what the undertakers are reporting are large rubbery blood clots. Now, normally when the body dies, the blood liquefies and it's drained out and then uh, preservatives are infused. But the undertakers noticed uh, large rubbery blood clots and they started to dissect and pull them out. Um, and it's just simply an observation. Uh, we haven't seen a single analysis uh, among vaccinated versus unvaccinated, those who had COVID, those who didn't have COVID. So there really hasn't been any science applied to these post-mortem blood clots. Um, my clinical understanding of this, I think most of these are post-mortem findings. 
I would anticipate that they're ubiquitous now. Since COVID-19, respiratory illness is ubiquitous. The vaccines have been widely applied. There's almost no one who's been untouched. Uh, the Framingham Heart Study has very good data. 98% of people have research-grade antibodies against the spike protein. U University of Texas and Houston found the same thing. Now, the, 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 the populations are saturated with spike protein through the respiratory infection or through vaccination. So it's not surprising to me the spike protein, uh, as it's resident in the body, could precipitate post-mortem development of blood clots. Now, the, the anti-mortem blood clots, uh, the Wu paper from the FDA is significant. That's with Janssen. And in my clinical practice, I've seen large blood clots with the messenger RNA vaccines in my own patients. So I have a patient right now with about a 14-inch blood clot in the thigh after a messenger RNA vaccination. I have one that is an ankle to hip after the Moderna vaccine. Wow. And now uh, about basically about 18 months later, FDA has announced that they're investigating blood clots with messenger RNA vaccines. Can these be screened for and can they be treated? Uh, I mean, clearly they defy the body's ability to break down clots, uh, you know, but perhaps, uh, well, yeah, can they be screened for? Uh, if I have, a, you know, people we care about, uh, will they show up on radiology? And yes, can they be treated? I think it should be clinically driven. So swelling, leg pain, effort and tolerance. And we use traditional venous Doppler. And, and yeah, the big ones are easy to identify. There's a blood test that's been found to be particularly useful to that, that you know, swings the odds towards blood clotting. That's called D-dimer, D-dimer. And so D-dimer and then ultrasound is used. We don't recommend uh, prospectively screening people who are perfectly asymptomatic. You know, we have data from a survey in the United States called Zogby survey uh, done last summer. And among those who took the vaccines in the Zogby survey, two thirds of uh, people uh, declared they were vaccinated. Uh, about 85% are perfectly fine. They have no symptoms whatsoever, none. And I think people who have taken the vaccine, they have no symptoms. Uh, you know, we, we wish them well, and they're probably going to be fine. But 15% of people have new diseases, blood clots, heart damage, neurologic damage. That's a huge percent of the population now struggling with medical problems. And it's been my experience when there's injury in one organ system, it's common to have injury in another organ system. So those with neuropathies, uh, those uh, with uh, blindness, uh, myocarditis, uh, you know, we ought to be much more active in screening for multi-system, basically spike protein induced disease. I've been uh, told to ask you this question about lipid nanoparticle mRNA. Now, I don't understand this, so hopefully you can explain it to us. Uh, but I think a lot of people comprehend the mRNA side of things, but can you focus a little bit on the lipid nanoparticle? How, do, how, do, does, it, how does it deliver the mRNA into the cell and uh, how can it disrupt the cell's normal function? Yeah, you know, RNA technologies have been used in medicine for a few years now, and they come in different varieties. Uh, years ago, I used a naked RNA product. It was a, a interfering RNA and it was called mypomersin and it wasn't on lipid nanoparticles. And so uh, the injections had to be fairly frequent and, and the reactions in, in the arms were tremendous. Finally, mypomersin was removed off the market. We used it in cardiology. Now we have two cardiology products. One's called Patirisan and the other one's called Inclinzaram. And they're, uh, inter again, interfering RNAs, but they're loaded on uh, almost a pitchfork type of uh, glyco uh, 
protein scaffold. And so they, when they're injected in the arm, they last for about a day or two, and then they're out of the body. Uh, what's happened with the vaccines is the messenger RNA, which is uh, synthetic, it has nucleoside analog ca caps at the three prime and five prime end. It makes them essentially undigestible, uh, but they're relatively unstable. So they're loaded onto lipid nanoparticles. And I think that whole uh, concept has been a disaster because prior to COVID, we, we knew the lipid nanoparticles go everywhere in the body. Uh, they cross the blood-brain barrier. So now we're delivering messenger RNA into the brain, into the nervous system, uh, into the adrenal glands, reproductive organs, uh, the lymph nodes. I mean, this is a complete disaster. We, we needed an, a, a, you know, some form of an antigen that would stay in the arm for a day or two and produce immunity. We didn't need something that was going to be on the move in the body. Uh, we had a paper by Wang and colleagues from China in, in 2019, uh, and there's, a, there's a, a picture of where the lipid nanoparticles go, and, and the number one arg organs where they go are the testes and the ovaries. I mean, this is a terrible thought that a COVID-19 vaccine would go to the reproductive organs. And, uh, you know, to make matters worse, when the lipid nanoparticles uh, come into a cell, they undergo a fusion process it's called a syncytial process. This is very important, syncytial. The cells start to fuse somewhat. And that fusion, there's, there's uptake of the messenger RNA. The messenger RNA produces the spike protein. The spike protein is expressed on the cell surface. And then the body's own immune system attacks the syncytia, the syncytia, and there's autoimmune organ injury. So yeah. the, the body is putting up on its surface a protein that's not supposed to be there, and then uh, the, the killer cells recognize it. And we have, in a sense, a war going on. And no wonder people feel so sick after these vaccines. In the United States, the CDC, under court order, had to release the V-safe data. This was the self-reported data in Americans. 10 million Americans got on their cell phone, and they reported what happened. This is shocking. 7 to 8% of Americans acutely have to go to the hospital or go to the emergency room or urgent care and, and, and receive treatment for acute toxicity from the vaccines. 25% are, are incapacitated the day or day after. And acute, acute happens within 72 hours of injection, isn't it? Yes, it's very acute. And again, I just Americans rush into the hospital with reactions, having to be hospitalized. The lipid nanoparticles are an unqualified disaster. Uh, and, and we know that, uh, you know, the origins of messenger RNA and for vaccination, uh, that dates back to 2012. Our U.S. military research unit called DARPA uh, had a program. They still have it. It's called the ADEPT P3 program, Pandemic uh, Protection Prevention Program. And they announced in 2012 they were going to use messenger RNA to end pandemics in 60 days. And the first flow of money went to Moderna to start working on this in 2013. And then Pfizer came in later. Pfizer essentially uh, tried to copy the code of Moderna. That's the reason why Moderna is suing Pfizer right now. So, but this has been a mess. This has been a military dream uh, to do this since 2012. The companies rushed in late. Uh, the lipid nanoparticles are not stable. The syncytial form, uh, formation is uh, very worrisome. Uh, we've now seen traces of the vaccine in the brain. Uh, Mortz in an autopsy study has shown this. This is very disturbing. Bohmeyer in Germany 
has shown it. It's physically in the heart. I mean, we don't need a vaccine to go, come to the heart and spike proteins are produced there. It's causing damage. Uh, we have a, a fertility data, a Chinese paper in JAMA, then a paper by GATT from Israel and Andreology showing reductions in sperm count and motility, toxicity from lipid nanoparticles and spike protein uh, in men. Uh, we don't have data in women, but there's a large paper from British Medical Journal showing uh, uh, nearly uniformly uh, in women, the menses are changed. The, the period cycles change. And anytime the cycle is changed even a little bit, it drops female fertility. Uh, so this has been, a, a, been again, a, just a debacle for reproductive health. And the list goes on and on. I personally know anecdotes, personal friends of mine who have each of those, one uh, with uh, sperm changes, uh, one vaccine-induced myocarditis, uh, and another uh, in the menses uh, postmenopausal. Uh, you know, so yeah, uh, just, just as an anecdote, but still. Well, listen, let me respond to that. Uh, anecdotes matter because it's word of mouth. And you tell somebody else uh, over the, uh, the holidays a few weeks ago, a Rasmussen report, representative survey was done, huge sample size. Again, two thirds of Americans says they took the vaccines. What we know there is 28% of Americans say they know somebody who's died due to the vaccine. 28%. Uh, we had the Zogby survey. I've already mentioned 15% of Americans say they have some new medical problem they're seeking care for. Uh, the Dr. Mark Skidmore Michigan State University survey, 22% of Americans know somebody who had a serious reaction to the vaccines. And the CDC vSafe data, 7 to 8% of Americans are so sick they go to the hospital. Th those are those self-reported surveys, four of them, the proportions are so large that we don't need social media. We don't need mainstream media. We don't need the internet. People are talking to one another. And by word of mouth, people have found out the vaccines are not safe. So just, just quickly, on, on, sorry, sorry, Adam, we'll just go back to the lipid nanoparticle. If this is if this is going everywhere in the body and it's going to cells that it probably shouldn't be going into. So say, for example, it goes into thyroid cells that are, or, or cells that are meant to be producing insulin, for example, and then the mRNA instructs that cell to produce the spike protein. Is that disrupting the body's normal processes? Sure. The spike protein uh, has been found close to the nucleus. This is disturbing because some experts believe even uh, uh, gametocytes, so eggs and sperm, are going to pass spike protein intracellularly. Uh, that's been uh, demonstrated. So we know the spike protein is, is very close to the nucleus when it's inside cells. Uh, papers written about how it's a metabolic strain just to be in the Golgi apparatus. It puts strain on the mitochondria. And then when it's expressed on the cell surface, uh, Polycretus and colleagues from Italy have shown it is an absolute autoimmune attack. And you're right. You Can you imagine someone who's genetically prone to diabetes having enough installed in the pancreas and having a final autoimmune attack on the pancreas and expressing clinical diabetes. Or, uh, you know, you intimated Hashimoto's thyroiditis and then ultimately having uh, clinically manifest thyroiditis. These autoimmune syndromes are, are really remarkable. Uh, one of them uh, is a, a lymphomatous type of lymph node hypertrophy that happens uh, in the arm, the axilla, the subclavicular lymph nodes, even up to the submandibular uh, lymph nodes. And, and this syndrome can be, uh, can be so impressive. A recent paper from my medical center here in Dallas showed that a large proportion of women who take these, the breast is distorted with uh, swollen lymph nodes. It causes uh, repeat mammograms, repeat testing. 
Uh, in that study, the median duration was 45 days, so it's not quick. Uh, it lasts for months. And, and an anecdote uh, for my co-author of my book, John Leak, who wrote Courage to Face COVID-19. This anecdote is powerful. His One of his former acquaintances, a young lady uh, on one of the islands off of Britain, uh, takes a vaccine in the arm and she starts to develop lymph node swelling. And it keeps going and going and going. It marches up her neck, becomes so concerning. They airlift her into St. Mary's in London. She has biopsies. She sees consultant after consultant, you know, a large number of them. And they come in the room and, and they proclaim that what she has is a complete enigma. They have no idea what she's had. They've never seen it before. It's not cancer, but it's some type of lymph node swelling that will not stop. But they know one thing and that it's not due to the vaccine. They don't know what it is, but it's not due to the vaccine. Now this goes, it, it keeps advancing. It crushes her carotid and she clinically has a stroke. So now she's ruined. And, and you know, her mother is there. She said, listen, I was a normal young lady until I took this vaccine and now I'm ruined. So in their mind, of course it's the vaccine. It was the only thing that changed and it temporarily was associated with taking the shot. The gaslighting has been horrible. My partner's brother, uh, uh, the vaccine induced myocarditis. It took three doctors for him that told him it was in his head. Uh, I asked for a D-dimer test to show it wasn't in his head his D-dimers were elevated. And uh, finally, he got uh, a cardiologist to, to look at the data and said, yes, of course, this was vaccine-induced myocarditis. I have dozens of cases of vaccine-induced myocarditis in my office now, all different variations. Fortunately, I haven't had a cardiac arrest, but boy, we have seen so many young people die with no explanation, no antecedent disease, you know, no obvious uh, explanation, no suicide, no drug overdose, no motor vehicle accident, person after person. The only change that we have in society has been the introduction of vaccines. Now, our FDA says they cause myocarditis and the peer-reviewed literature says the myocarditis can and is fatal. Our FDA says they cause blood clots. Autopsy studies show they can and they are fatal. Even the FDA manuscripts show they're fatal. So our vaccines are introducing fatal syndromes. People are dying. The missing link is that families are not coming out and disclosing the vaccine status. They seem to be in some type of regretful trance, uh, not expressing any outrage on what's happening. And then we're not having the large scale autopsies that we really need uh, to help identify things. You know, we need to do risk factors, genetics, we need epidemiology. Uh, in the United States, uh, you know, we have 87% of, or 83% of people took these and two thirds at one point in time were fully vaccinated. We have to figure this out quick. We've got a public health crisis on our hands. Just with that, because you talked about the, um, you know, everyone going well. We don't know why this is happening. Oh my goodness. The first things I know, like just from my previous experiences with doctors and stuff, if, if you had it happen to get a rash, they would turn around and say, what did you, have you eaten something different? Have you, right. have you right. taken, have you used a different washing detergent for your clothes? So, we can, you know, anyone who's got kind of like a little bit of common sense could turn around and go, well, if you've got so many people getting sick and so many people have taken the, the, this this COVID vaccine, um, and that's, you know, maybe it's to do with that. Now, you touched on, you know, people, a lot of people dying. Uh, so this sudden adult death syndrome that's been going, like obviously going around. And we've been, and as Paul said, we've been gaslighted totally because they will, they will turn around and say, we 100% know it's not the vaccine, but we got all these young kids dying and you know and as you said before as well 
We've got professional athletes who are at the absolute peak of their fitness. They are young. They're 18. They're 18 to 25 at the peak of physical fitness. I mean, they've got youth on their side. They've got health. They've got fitness. And we're seeing these poor children and poor young people drop dead. So, um, you know, you know, with this sudden adult death syndrome, what, what, what have you, what is your opinion on, on this? Well, we have some leads recently, Dr. Polycretus from Italy and myself. Uh, we published the top line results just from a public blog that uh, is being kept on athlete deaths. This to give you a, a reference, uh, age under 35 active players before the vaccines, all the European leagues and pro and semi-pro, 29 cardiac arrests per year, 29. Since COVID-19 vaccines, when we restrict that blog database down to age under 35 active players, again, uh, you know, don't include any older people with deaths of other causes. So really kind of make it apples to apples. That number annualized now is 283 deaths, cardiac arrests per year, about, about two thirds are fatal. We are talking a tenfold increase, and that's the best data we have. Uh, all the athletic leagues right now should be keeping registries of death. And during COVID, before the vaccines, the athletic leagues were very interested in myocarditis. In the United States, uh, the Big Ten, which is a big uh, athletic collegiate uh, uh, conference, they had a myocarditis screening program where 30% of the athletes got COVID. They were checking troponin, EKGs, echoes, MRIs, a very good program. The U.S. military was doing the same thing. They didn't find much. There was an occasional sporadic case, no hospitalizations or deaths. And then they jettisoned the program. They should be running and redeploying full myocarditis screening program now because the vaccines really cause myocarditis to much a greater extent than the viral illness does. And yet, uh, yet the, the leagues and the hospitals, the federal agencies, they just seem to be turning a blind eye to uh, what is an emerging safety disaster. I just, I quickly want to just um, touch on that because you said that there's a kind of a similarity between being vaccinated and having COVID in the past, uh, you know, because it all goes back to the spike protein. Now I'm unvaccinated, but I did have COVID in the past. Uh, could it be possible that some of this just to play devil's advocate is just like a long-term uh, consequence of having COVID? That's a very good question. I think the answer is that it's very possible. We know from data from Bruce Patterson, a former pathologist at Northwestern in Stanford, now at Incel DX, he's demonstrated that the S1 segment, the outer segment of the spike protein has been found in CD16 positive monocytes in severe cases, hospitalized for up to 15 months, up to 15 months. Uh, he's shown now in the vaccinated that both the S1 and the S2 segment are present in him as long as he's looked. So it may be far more permanent after a vaccine. Now, because the antibodies are so much higher to the spike protein after the vaccine compared to the natural infection, I would infer that the vaccines load the body with way more spike protein than the natural infection. And furthermore, the, the natural infection, if it's treated with early multi-drug therapy and virucidal nasal sprays and washes, the viral exposure to the systemic circulation can be dramatically attenuated. So we have a situation here where early treatment can really reduce spike protein exposure. But having said that, there's a paper from the US Veterans Administration before the vaccines, that's the only kind of clean liquid can have it. And there are no doubt about it, increased rates of 
cardiovascular events, myocardial infarction, stroke, heart failure uh, for the uh, veterans who are hospitalized. There's about a six week risk period after a COVID hospitalization, uh, far lower risks for outpatient COVID. But I do take that seriously. In the McCullough protocol, we advise aspirin, full dose, 325 milligrams for 90 days. The, the uh, Italians under treatment domiciliary protocols do 700 milligrams a day. Japanese have been doing this. We don't want to get burned with a late heart attack or stroke. There's the McCullough there. Um, uh, but, but that's COVID before the vaccines. Now the problem we have in both Australia and the United States is people have both exposures. So they've had COVID and they've had the vaccines and they've had COVID again and they've had more vaccines. So there's a, a, a continued accrual of spike protein exposure. And so it's impossible at this point to say, well, it's just due to COVID respiratory illness. Well, no, because most people have taken the vaccines. And so it's actually both. And that may be the problem actually. So in each patient, you know, I take a vaccine history. I, I record what they took, but I also record when they've had COVID. And for all these athletes having cardiac arrest, we need to know both pieces of history. Uh, thank you for the McCullough protocol. I know early on in 2020, uh, that lowered my sense of my family's risk because you had the courage to treat. So thank you uh, for that for a, a long time. Um, the one question I have, the reactivation of latent viruses and the effect of COVID and the spike protein on the immune system. This thing has seems like so many effects on the human body. And I wonder what's the cause of the reactivation of latent viruses is it uh, the, the, uh, the spike protein effect on the immune system? What do we know about what the spike does to the immune system? Well, let's, like, let's take, uh, this has been a pretty thorough interview. Let, let's take the viral infection first. So the viral infection, uh, the RNA that's in, kind of wound up in the nucleocapsid, some of it does temporarily reverse transcribe, little strands of it, mainly coding for the nucleocapsid, um, but it's either that process or uh, the inflammation or the stress of the illness, just with the illness, that it's been well described, there'll be shingles. And I've had patients who have, who have COVID and then, you know, six weeks later, they have shingles or they can have reactivation of other illnesses. Shingles, varicella zoster is far and away the most common. Now with the vaccines, it's very different where we don't have the full exposure to the virus. In, in most cases, the modern vaccines in Australia, United States, it's messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA, or some circumstances now just the spike protein in the Novavax. Uh, so we don't have the full virus, but we're seeing a broad reactivation pattern here. So we have clearly have Epstein-Barr virus reactivation syndrome, where we can actually measure the antigen, the virus itself being liberated from cells, as well as the antibody response, cytomegalovirus, Again, varicella zoster virus. Uh, it's even a more vigorous set of reactivation syndromes. So at one single paper has created great concern. It, it came out of a lab in Malmo, Sweden. Yang Dimarinis is the senior clinical investigator, well-respected basic scientist, Marcus Alden, younger first uh, author. But they demonstrated in a human hepatoma cell line with physiologic concentrations of Pfizer that at least a portion of the Pfizer code was reverse transcribed with an endogenous reverse transcriptase called line one. And so the base pairs uh, uh, in the cytosol line up <coughs> and actually anneal against the code of Pfizer 
and then a plasmid is formed and that goes into the nucleus and then delivers the reverse transcribed payload into the human chromatin. We think <coughs> fully into human chromosomes. Now they what? showed just a 444 base pair. It's called the amplicon. And it's because that region they knew reliably could be reported and identified. They actually use a PCR uh, to identify. Now, experts believe since it was the center part of the code that got in that probably the whole code is being reverse transcribed. Uh, and we're waiting for labs to be able to confirm this. No one's uh, been able to refute the findings of the Malmo lab. This is disturbing. That means each person who takes uh, Pfizer or Moderna <coughs> may be undergoing a permanent chromosomal change in their body or at least a mosaic of cells. Uh, it's disturbing enough that the messenger RNA is not getting out of the body. A paper by Rolkin and colleagues found it stuck in lymph nodes for months, no signs of it going away. Uh, human RNA aces appear to not be able to break down Pfizer or Moderna. It may be for keeps. Just Sorry, just to touch on that. So when we're talking about chromosomes, they're, they, they're the building blocks of the human i mean because if you if you have down syndrome you have i think a chromosome or half of one missing or something like that so if it's altering chromosomes or getting into them that's not good right our cdc gave all these assurances that it doesn't alter the human genome and that's the reason why this uh, paper from malmo sweden so important it looks like it does alter the human genome and the question is how much we know it's about four thousand base pairs uh, coding for the spike protein and in general, non-human uh, DNA ends up in a region in the chromosomes called the HERV region, HERV region. And, and about 10% of our DNA is actually not human. A lot of people don't know this, uh, that we're carrying vestigial uh, forms of non-human genetic code from prior infections. I mentioned anybody who had mono, chicken pox, various uh, forms of herpes. Um, there, there are a whole variety of other viruses, cytomegalovirus, you know, we carry those forward. We can actually even pass them down. But this could be the first time that man-made genetic material is reverse transcribed and permanently alters the human genome. We have, we have no idea what this is going to do long term. That means in uh, organs and tissues that, you know, have regenerative capabilities, that means parent cells pass it to daughter cells. That would be in somatic cell lines like the liver. And then I think a really scary proposition, that means gametocytes, that means sperm and ovaries, in theory, could actually take up Pfizer and then incorporate it and then pass it down to the baby. So now the baby doesn't have a choice. They have a permanent uh, installation of Pfizer and Moderna in their body. It, it, this is all very conceivable. And we don't know what effect that will have on the health of the person. We're, we're in uncharted territory, I think. Well, think about it. So let, let's just take the worst case scenario. The, the full genetic code for the spike protein is downloaded and now it's in human DNA. The questions on the table is, well, what happens next? Uh, is there low level uh, constitutive production of spike protein? Is, is it kind of a chronic non-human protein, a toxic protein just produced in this mosaic of cells? Is it inducible? Meaning in the setting of stress or some other uh, change, can it produce large quantities of spike protein and, and to, uh, in a sense, cause uh, the, the cell to undergo cell death or even adjacent cell attack? Could that happen? 
or is it completely repressed? Does the body have the ability to repress it? Or indeed, is there any gene editing that goes on? Now, with the re respiratory virus natural infection, I mentioned some partial reverse transcription. It looks like gene editing, at least for the nucleocapsid, uh, handles this. There, there isn't any signs that COVID-19 itself alters uh, the human genome uh, to any um, permanence. Uh, with a messenger RNA, it may be a completely different ballgame. Sorry. I was going to uh, Sorry, Stephen, you go, and then I'll have, I've got a question after. No, I just wanted to bring up um, the Australian government recently came out and the Australian Bureau of Statistics as well came out and said that there's an incredibly high 13% increase in excess deaths. Uh, one of our senators here, Matt Canavan, said it could be as high as 17%. Do you have an update of uh, what you're seeing in the excess death rate and why is that unprecedented, though, those numbers? We, we've had all-cause mortality now as part of our U.S. Um, Senate panel on December 7th, 2023. It was presented by former BlackRock executive and analyst uh, Edward Dowd and insurance company specialist Josh Sterling. They presented the data and it, it was stunning. Every U.S. life insurance now company is reporting record claims for all-cause mortality, working age typically 18 to 59. Uh, most of these are large corporations that offer life insurance, and they're also ones that mandated the vaccine. All-cause mortality is up across all age groups, and this is alarming. The Society of Actuaries in the United States has produced a report, and it's an unbiased report, and they're just reporting the news, you know, anywhere from 40 to 60% excess mortality. The mortuaries say more than a 10% swing in any year is cataclysmic that it's just never seen because they know because they have to adjust the insurance premiums based on uh, actuarial data. So the actuaries know the information. And then there's a report out of a German health insurance company, a private health insurance company, uh, and they're reporting about a 40% increase in all-cause mortality uh, among the vaccinated. And very importantly, it's mortality of unknown cause. And prior to the vaccines, Mortality, largely, you know, 99% of cases had a known cause. Remember, death prior to the vaccines was attributed 40% to heart disease, 40% to cancer, and 20% to other causes. But the etiology is known before the death. It's a known history of heart failure or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease or cancer. We, did, we never had large fractions of unexpected sudden deaths. And now there's an absolute epidemic. I was on US national TV this morning and a report was given that there's going to be a skyrocketing in defibrillator sales for people who are successfully resuscitated because they're going to need implantable defibrillators. Well, we've noticed um, just in, just in, I noticed that like our local shops and everywhere in the last couple of years, there's just, they've got defibrillators everywhere now, um, just on the topic of defibrillator sales but um my question was going to be about um um in regards to all your chromosomal and and the, and the safe and effectiveness and that it doesn't transfer through the body and going to all the body cells and stuff um my other the, our government the australian government now is is they're considering authorizing like a sixth shot so we've had one two three four five 
and now they're also like you know say recommending a sixth shot so we still get um so the tax australian taxpayer is still paying the governments and the governments are still doing um their advertising campaigns to you know oh well you better be up to date and please you know get you get your next shot so now they're, they're now starting to roll on to i believe the sixth sixth shot after the information that you've just spoken to about just a few minutes ago how is it and and obviously we're talking about our political leaders who are meant to be um you know our shining light in darkness they're meant to be doing right for the people who are who they're meant to represent how in they would surely have these reports um how in good conscience can our politicians can our chief medical officers we've got a new south wales health brad hazard and we've got dr kerry chant always talking about this these vaccinations and stuff how in good conscience can they um refute the information that you have and that you've discussed today and still recommend the regular people to go get them they can't you know there's over 1250 peer-reviewed manuscripts published and cited in pubmed on vaccines injuries disabilities and deaths and uh, the data are suggesting that the risk is cumulative. The more shots that are taking, these risks keep going up and up. Uh, today on today's Substack, I just report on uh, uh, maternal hemorrhage of women who ill-advised took these vaccines. And just going from shot two to shot three is a big step up in risk. Uh, in Canada, they're reporting now over 80 Canadian doctors, young doctors have died uh, after the fourth shot now. Uh, these are stunning numbers. Canada's not that big of a country. It's about as big as Australia population-wise. Right. They have that many doctors. Uh, you know, this is absolutely alarming. Uh, you know, one of the first nurses in Canada who took the bivalent booster, she had, must have had two or three prior shots. She goes in to take the booster and, and in the pharmacy, and she's this mandatory waiting period. So she's waiting. She's texting her daughter. She just dies right there in the pharmacy. I mean, this is, uh, you know, she did fine with the first shot, first few shots, and then she dies on the subsequent booster. So it looks like almost every shot represents a, a Russian roulette of immediate risk and then a cumulative toxicity. And the cumulative toxicity we're seeing uh, in terms of myocarditis, uh, blood clots, and neurologic damage. And another couple of examples, we had uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers football team uh, head coach Bruce Arians. He was pushing the vaccine, take the vaccine. He, he said all the players and staff took the vaccine. So he must have had, you know, according to the schedule, he must have had three or four of these. He ends up in the hospital with myocarditis. He's hospitalized in October. Um, <clears throat> these public utterances are, are very clear now, and it looks uh, uh, cumulative. I told you only 13% of Americans are, are taking these anymore, and only 11% of nursing home workers. I think the vast majority of people have gotten the message and they're not taking it anymore. Right. Dr. McCullough, you seem to be the perfect person to ask about the FAA uh, change in the EKG window that's acceptable for pilots. Uh, I can't begin to understand the significance uh, of that and how that all works. Could you explain that a bit? And is that a real issue? You know, I see pilots, I actually do this work in terms of looking over their EKGs. And they did uh, liberalize the PR interval, the timing interval from uh, the onset of the P wave to the QRS complex. And, and you know, that just, again, may be an actuarial thing. The, the pilot population is, uh, is becoming older. Uh, the PR interval does lengthen with age. Beta blockers and calcium channel blockers prolong it. 
It's not an interval that's related to sudden death. It can be related to, to heart block, uh, but typically predictable forms of heart block. So I think it's it, they probably were at a point where there was a percentage of pilots that were being flagged on the PR interval. Maybe it was just instead of 200 milliseconds, it was like 210 or something like this. And they just liberalized the criteria. Uh, of sudden death in pilots. But, you know, again, we have some serious anecdotes. We had a pilot uh, take off on an airplane out of Chicago O'Hare, and he died in takeoff. Uh, and they, there was a, a resuscitation. The, the staff did the best they could. The remaining pilot landed the plane, and he died on the plane. 36-year-old man died on the plane. Um, and there was another event here in Dallas, Pilot Snow, more senior pilot, he lands the plane, he pulls up to the jetway at DFW, and then he collapses, has a cardiac arrest in the jetway. And fortunately, he was resuscitated, he was defibrillated, brought to a local hospital. And, uh, you know, he's come out and said he, he's almost certain the vaccine did this to him, that this is a vaccine-related cardiac death. He'll never fly again, uh, and it's influenced his life greatly. So uh, pilots, because, you know, hundreds of people's lives are in their hands, uh, they, they should never take a risk with myocarditis or blood clots or neurologic damage with the vaccine. They need to be free of the vaccine so they don't put people's lives at risk. Now, we've, we've asked you a, a broad range of questions tonight, um, and you've been able to answer them thoroughly, really yeah. thoroughly. How do you deal with, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, claims that you are spreading misinformation? Like if you look at your your Wikipedia page, they're saying that you're spreading misinformation and all this garbage that, that they claim. What drives you to keep going despite all the negativity and despite all the, the attacks uh, against you? You know, just before I came on, I got an email from someone in Australia and he uh, remarked that there were fact checkers that were disputing uh, what I said. I think Australians should not be concerned with anonymous and uncredentialed fact checkers. I mean, we have no idea who these people are. They're making false claims. They're, in a sense, they're spreading incorrect information. You know, I'm a highly credentialed, highly published doctor. Uh, there's never been a doctor at my standing. Let's say somebody who's got 650 peer-reviewed publications in the National Library of Medicine, someone with, you know, six dozen publications on COVID. There's never been a doctor at my level that's ever publicly disagreed with anything that I've said. There's never been a doctor at my level that's actually ever sent me an email or a text message or a phone call and said they disagreed. And we've had multiple U.S. Senate sessions where we have chairs there for our public health officials, Anthony Fauci, Rochelle Walensky, uh, uh, Surgeon General Murthy, uh, FDA advisors, they're all invited to attend and they will not show up to have even a conversation like we've had today. I think that speaks volumes. I think it speaks volumes. Uh, uh, on my Twitter today, a doctor went up and addressed a public health uh, official in Indiana, just wanted to ask some questions on safety of the vaccine. Absolutely positively was shut down. Well, the, the, the officials will not discuss uh, the ongoing safety data with the vaccines, and the public is getting so uneasy. Well, um, I took your advice. So we have our chief official in New South Wales, Dr. Kerry Chant, um, and she was, you know, 
pushing the masks and um, and the vaccines, as I said before. But when I went online and when I was doing my research before I just before I did or didn't take the the vaccine, um, I'm unvaccinated anyway. I don't care who knows. I'm proud of it. Um, but I was going to say um, when Dr. Peter McCullough says don't take it or you've got to mitigate mitigate your risk of you know weigh up your risk factors for it um i'm listening to him over a doctor who has no clinical practice has um been a political uh a political doctor basically i mean she's got a doctor she's a doctor got a doctorate but um you know and i respect that but the fact of the matter is that she hasn't got a clinic she hasn't hasn't got any patients and then you come along and you're 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 a treating doctor i'll listen to you <laughs> Yeah, no, there's a hierarchy, and it's, it's largely in the National Library of Medicine, the PubMed. You can type in anyone's name and, and see what they've done. And, uh, you know, at my level, you know, I'd say, let's say, more than 500 papers that are cited. That means I've read so many more papers. I've written so many papers. I've analyzed so much more data. I've chaired data safety monitoring boards in over two dozen randomized trials. I mean, I do have medical authority that trumps <laughs> the opinions of others. And, and, you know, people have said, oh, no, they, you, you know, you need to debate uh, somebody who's a comedian in Las Vegas. It's like, no, I don't. I've given my opinion. Uh, you know, I went on the Larry Elder show earlier today and he showed a montage of statements of Anthony Fauci, who, you know, flip flopped on masks and is recommended. He couldn't give a straight story. And I told Larry Elder, I said, Larry, I've made more public statements than Fauci has in the last three years. I have. And I've been completely consistent the entire time. I've cited the data. I have not flip-flopped. I've evolved my thinking as the data emerged and the virus mutated. I mean, America, you can just do these side-by-side -side comparisons. You, you, could pick, you could pull out hundreds, if not thousands, of clips of me out there. And I am completely consistent all the way through. And America over time has basically decided who they're going to trust. And they just can't stand any more flip-flop. They can't stand doctors who don't take care of patients. Uh, they can't stand doctors who are not going to cite the data. And they know that these public health officials are stonewalling them. They're not answering questions. And then doctors are gaslighting patients. And our Substack, we actually had a, a whole Substack on gaslighting. It came from a movie in the 1940s where gaslighting means basically people are not being taken seriously. They're being intentionally deceived. Yeah. Are you surprised not more doctors have stood up and, and spoken out? Uh, you know, I was surprised with, with uh, initially the grip of fear doctors were in. So doctors were so fearful. They were too afraid to treat patients. They truly were too, af too afraid early on. And, and then I was stunned by December of 2020, how many doctors took the vaccine? I was, without asking any questions, they received their first genetic injection of their lives and they asked no questions. The est estimates are in the United States, 96% of doctors took a vaccine. Wow. I was stunned. It's like, didn't they ask what this is? It's the genetic code of an engineered spike protein from a biosecurity lab in Wuhan, China. That's what this is. They never asked what's in it and what is it going to do with the body? You know, they readily took these shots with no assurances on long-term safety, none. And, and uh, you know, these doctors now, I think, are in a psychological dilemma. 
they've taken their vaccines. They now see this happening to the patients, blood clots, heart damage, neurologic damage, and they are going into a psychological fugue state. They are in absolutely, there's somewhat of a trance, it's somewhat of a panic, they're gaslighting other patients. They can't come to the psychological reckoning that it could happen to them. And I'll tell you, 80 uh, Canadian doctors who have died, there's been prominent doctors in the United States, it's getting worse by the minute. You've spoken of your writing, and we're getting to the point where we're, we're getting to the end of the interview, but you've spoken of your writing. You wrote this book, The Courage to Face COVID-19. Can you let us know why we should all be reading this book? You know, it's available through Amazon in Australia. You can also order it through the website. Courage to Face COVID-19 is a book that's a, it's considered a true crime nonfiction narrative, and it, it really describes what happened. Uh, you know, I'm a character in the book, but there are many others. Didier Rialt in France is a prominent character. There was a worldwide intentional suppression of all forms of early treatment. And that resulted in unnecessary hospitalizations and deaths, large numbers of them. And it was intentional and it was a crime. And the book lays it out, the struggles that happened and you know, why did the White House reach out to me? How did I get involved in the U.S. Senate? You know, how did I go on Joe Rogan and break all the records he's ever had on his yeah. podcast? Mm -hmm. So I play a role. Many others do. Paul Merrick, Eastern Virginia University School of Medicine, uh, one of the most published doctors in all of critical care and the use of ivermectin. Uh, we summarized the work by J.J. Roster at, uh, in Florida, four hospitals, the ICON study published in the best pulmonology journal, ivermectin reducing mortality by 50%. And then the agonizing actions of hospitals and administrators, even against court orders, denying ivermectin and letting patients die. I mean, the book is gripping. Uh, John Leake is a best-selling true crime author. It's the only book in COVID-19 that's readable. I mean, you can read it in about two and a half hours. It's not a boring medical book. It's a thriller. I think everybody in Australia ought to read it. Uh, it it's, it's a quick read. It's got over a thousand five-star reviews on Amazon because it just, it really helps people understand what happened in this first phase of the pandemic. Wow. I'd imagine that most of the uh, bookstores around Australia or around, I know around my area probably won't even stock that because <laughs> um, I'll have to get it online because, um, you know, it's against the narrative. You know, there seems to be just a false government narrative all over the world. And we realize in the United States now that COVID-19 was considered a national security operation. It wasn't a public health operation. Uh, recently, the Twitter files, the Twitter drop of files, Elon Musk uh, you know, putting these out there, revealed that the U.S. had intelligence community, FBI agents inside Twitter. This was an FBI operation to uh, to impair any uh, updates on treatment of any type, hospital, inpatient, outpatient, nasal sprays, anything. They were all suppressed. And then any information on vaccine side effects was suppressed in order to railroad the vaccines on the population. It was a U.S. government intelligence community operation. I bet the same is true in Australia. Yeah. And just a final question to finish up with been through a lot in the last two to three years. Uh, we've faced a lot of things, especially for us being unvaccinated and here in Australia, especially. Can you finish on a lighter note? Is there any, what can you see in the future? Is there any positivity or anything good outcomes happening? Uh, can you give people like a little bit of hope going forward? 
Please. If we've learned anything, you know, you know, for the 10% of Australians and 17% of Americans who didn't take the vaccine, boy, it was the best health decision they've ever made. I think everybody who wakes up just enjoys another day free of disease, free of worry. Uh, just a fantastic decision uh, to rely on your own healthy immune system and, and just follow the data. We knew under age 65, the case fatality rate way less than 1%. I mean, who would ever take a vaccine under age 65? Um, and to understand the vaccines don't stop uh, the infection, they don't stop spread, or CDC has come out and said this, and no randomized trial has ever shown the vaccines reduce hospitalization and death as a primary or secondary endpoint. none. So uh, there are no substantive vaccine claims on benefit, just at, you know, maybe theoretical benefit or it's done for some other reason, but it's not healthy. Um, we've gone over the safety uh, side effects. So the good news, the unvaccinated are going to come out great. Those who took one or two shots haven't had any symptoms. I'm not seeing things emerge, uh, provided they don't get superimposed COVID-19. Now, in my practice, I've had two women recently get blood clots, serious cases of blood clots, 18 months after the last shot, but they got intercurrent COVID. So I'm still uh, a bit concerned on that. But I, I, I still think 85% of the population ought to be able to get out of this okay if they don't take any more shots. People have asked, how do we detox this? Is there any positive data on detoxification of, of uh, genetic material, spike protein? Genetic material, no. There's no advancements on how, what, what we can possibly do about that. Spike protein, yes. People have tried uh, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, fluvoxamine. I've tried them all. No success. None. Uh, but the Japanese have recently reported on an advancement using an available Japanese uh, substance uh, from a natural product is called natokinase, natokinase, N-A-T-T-O-K-I-N-A-S-E. Very good preclinical study. Showed that natokinase dissolved the spike protein without injuring the cells. I was very impressed with this. Now it needs to go through clinical trials in advance, uh, but this is an available supplement. It actually may be our only lead on spike protein detoxification. So that would be like almost you could just take that to actually stop COVID anyway, because it would dissolve the spike protein if it goes into the body. Well, it could stop at least uh, some of the thrombogenic uh, aspects of it. You know, the viral replication is the problem. If viral replication can basically outpace just about anything, that's the reason why the nasal sprays and washes are so important. Uh, you know, prior to the nasal sprays, someone could be infectious for 14 days. Now that we routinely use dilute povidone iodine or dilute hydrogen peroxide nasal sprays and gargles, the PCR positivity is now about two and a half to three days. So it doesn't spread. So the key, the masks never stopped the virus, but the nasal sprays and gargles did. That, that was a huge advance in our protocols. And, and again, dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide, xylitol, colloidal silver, uh, they all have benefits, nebulization. The only caveat here is they have to be sufficiently dilute. If there's any irritation or stinging, they're too strong. Is autophagy a good way of getting rid of spike protein? We'd hope uh, that the body could undergo cell turnover and be, you know, the Bruce Patterson data suggests most of the spike protein is intracellular. So that leaves the possibility of autophagy or just cell turnover to, to basically get rid of this stuff. There's not a lot of free-floating spike later on. It looks like the, the duration of the spike protein free floating in a paper by Harvard, uh, by Ogata and colleagues is about 30 days. The Yonkers paper, uh, I believe it was about, there was about two weeks where they <clears throat> found it there. 
So I don't think people are walking around with circulating spike protein pulsing in their veins, but the cells are taking it in. It's inside monocytes. That's the reason why it's not going to be responsive to chelation and a lot of these extracellular therapies. But the, the natto looks pretty good. Um, uh, you know, we have a, one um, a form of a supplement. I took a position as the chief scientific officer of the wellness company, and it has, a, you know, it, it's an alternative health system. It has a lot to it. But one of the supplements is far and away the most popular it's called Dr. Vanderwater's Detox Supplement. And it, it actually features natokinase and about six other uh, substances, Chinese uh, or Japanese herbs and other uh, micronutrients. And th that one looks most promising twice a day on that one. Go to twc.health.com, uh, Dr. Vanderwater's Supplement. It's available in Australia. We have a big Australian following there. So. Awesome. I'm on that. We're all on that. All of us are <laughs> gonna all of us are gonna take that note down. We'll have to put it in the comments, Trippy. Yeah, we will. And how okay. and how can people follow you if they haven't followed your work? Well, so thank far? you. You can follow me. Go to my website, petermccullummd.com. I've got links that work. It goes to everywhere on social media. I I have uh, one of the bigger doctor Twitter accounts right now. It's been restored. I was temporarily suspended for two months during the dark days of Twitter. Elon Musk uh, liberated me. You know, there was a vote on Twitter. It was 98 to 2 to let me back on Twitter. A former President Trump, he just got 52 to 48. So yeah. I can tell you, the doctors kind of blew away the politicians. Everyone wanted the doctors back. Jessica Rose, James Lyon Weiler, myself, Dr. Lynn Flynn, Richard Urso. We all came back because, you know, people were relying on our protocols, our innovation, our scientific uh, abstracts. Uh, so there's my uh, Twitter feed. Everybody should get on my Twitter feed, follow me. I, if they're automatically unfollowing me or shadow banning, let me know, uh, and I will make a report to, to Twitter. Uh, I have, I'm also on Getter, Truth Social, which you don't have in Australia, Telegram. And I have a podcast that's very popular in Australia, America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday, and then on the Apple iHeart podcast circuit during the week, interview doctors from all over the world. And then of course the book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we've gone over that. And lastly, Substack. Substack is a really a, a bastion of uh, original media. I started this during my Twitter exile with uh, John Leake and we both co-publish. And uh, Substack, support the Substack. It's, I think it's very affordable and I'll give updates every day. That's where people are going to get a little bit more than what they're going to get in Twitter. It's republished in Twitter. My Substack's also, by the way, republished by Epoch Times and Trialsite News because the science quality is so high. So can't wait to come to Australia. I hope it works. It works out, and I'll uh, I'll be with the great uh, Australians, and you know we'll hopefully start to get the continent back on the right track. Yes, well, we definitely hope so. And if you beat uh, Trump in a poll, maybe you should run for president. <laughs> At some point, <laughs> he's too busy all the time. Come on, Stephen. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. But um, we're definitely looking forward to having you um, come to here to to Australia, and uh, you know, hopefully, you have no issues when you're here again. Coolum, uh, February 10th, Gold Coast, February 11th, Melbourne, February 12th, and Sydney, February 13th. Uh, I'm, I'm don't think tickets are on sale yet. They will be shortly, so uh, we can't give the link to the tickets yet. But stay. Stay tuned for those. And uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it far and wide. I'm sure we'll be, uh, you know, deleted on YouTube like we have in the past and all that sort of stuff. But we're on Rumble. We're on Spotify. We haven't had any issues there yet. So um, please share this interview around so it gets everywhere, so this information gets everywhere. And, again, 
Thank you very much, Dr. McCulloch, uh, for this interview tonight and everything that you've done in the last two to three years. I know the three of us really appreciate all your work, your courage, and uh, and your truth-telling as well. So thank you very much. Thanks. Pleasure to join you. See you soon. Thank you, Dr. So what an unbelievable interview that was with Dr. McCulloch. Like, we're completely blown away. I know my heart was pumping the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably stumbled upon my words. But while I've got you two both here, I want to quickly bring up uh, this event that we're having on the 2nd of February. It's a Thursday night at the DYRSL. It's the 2023 Climate and Energy Forum. We're going to have the Honourable Mark Latham speaking, Craig Kelly. Dr. Peter Ridd uh, is coming all the way down from uh, from Queensland. Uh, we've also got John Ruddick from the Liberal, Liberal Democrats. Malcolm Roberts, Senator Malcolm Roberts, is uh, uh, making a video Jeff Grimshaw, who's also been on the show in the past, and Joel Jamal will be hosting the event, uh, and it will be live streamed to Turning Point Australia. But you two, Adam Zara and uh, Paul Vallejo, will be speakers at the event. Um, so please jump on the Eventbrite link. Are you guys excited? Yeah, very much so. Definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking, looking forward to that. About, uh, we'll be talking about nuclear energy some. I have some background in nuclear energy uh, during my uh, education and my time at the Space Centre. And, yep. uh, and that's going to factor into the to the climate debate. So what were you doing at NASA? Just so uh, It was a number of different things. So it had a few years at systems engineering uh, that was analyzing basically what they called launch architectures, the, the different fleets of spaceships that would require to do certain missions. Uh, and yeah. some of the things that I ended up looking at were the um, some of the safety profiles of, of launching uh, an engine that had a nuclear propulsion source and what the safety aspects of doing that would have been. Um, and then I worked also a number of years in avionics. Wow. So this is going to be a great event. Free tickets, everyone, free tickets. So uh, there's, I think, a maximum of 600 tickets. So jump on the link. It will be in the description and uh, and try and get your tickets. And it, it should be a great night. So uh, we encourage you all to, to go along. And uh, Adam, just quickly, you've got a barbecue this weekend as well, don't you? Yeah, I've got a barbecue this weekend because um, obviously the campaign trail started. We've got the March election coming up. Um, the barbecue's down at uh, Appen Park. It starts at 9 o'clock and it goes till 11. Come down, especially if you're um, local to Campbelltown area or, if you know, even if Appen Road affects you, um, you know, when that's a holiday holiday takers road. Um, you know, we, we don't want our kids getting hurt on there anymore. 30 deaths in, uh, since... Uh, in 30 30 deaths in 30 years and you know that's you know that's a lot for a road um it really doesn't need to be that way um but just touching back on the climate for forum i'm also looking very forward to um jumping onto the climate forum i'm looking forward to seeing uh paul's speech on or talk on um on the uh, nuclear stuff because everyone knows i'm no i'm no, not shy of nuclear i'm looking forward to it as well so i'll be taking notes paul because i'll be rehashing all the stuff that you say <laughs> I'll be talking about it in other speeches, uh, so um, it's a, it's it's going to be it's going to be a good one. Um, I think um, we'll have to take it. I'll take it probably from a little bit more of a you know how the how the policy how the politicians are taking the information or the the, the misinformation and then and, and then and are willing to bankrupt um, the Australian people over it. Um, you know, put us into energy and um, you know financial poverty really, and that's what happens. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a great topic and I look forward to um, Paul's speech and um, and it's going to be a great a great night and I think everyone should go. Anyone who can get a ticket should. Yep. 
Yep, definitely. All right. Well, thank you everyone for watching. Uh, again, please share it everywhere. You know, we, we just had a video recently deleted on uh, YouTube. So we really rely on uh, people to get past this, the shadow banning and everything like that. So uh, please share it far and wide and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Adam. Thank you.